Welcome to the How to Resist podcast. My name is Will O'Neill. The How to Resist podcast is a space for talking about how anyone can become an activist and take a strategic approach to resisting the Trump administration and making an impact in their communities, their workplace, their country, and the world. Each week, we're going to sit down with an activist who will tell us how they came to be empowered and how they resist the injustices they see around them and the Donald Trump administration. How to Resist isn't a space where we're going to try to convince you why it's important to resist injustice in general, and Trump in particular. There are plenty of other places for that conversation. We are here to let you know that you are empowered to make change in the world around you. So I thought before we get to our first interview that I would tell you a little bit about what this podcast is about. Since Trump came to office, he has attempted to silence government employees, started to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, leaving health insurance markets in chaos and millions of people wondering if they're going to lose their health care. He assigned an executive order to begin construction of a wall along our southern border and damaged our relationship with Mexico, our third largest trading partner, perhaps starting a trade war by suggesting a tariff on Mexican goods. He's banned refugees from seven Muslim-majority countries, doing so on Holocaust Remembrance Day, when we should be remembering the human cost of denying refugees sanctuary. He's attacked the press at every turn, and that's just the start. But progressive, liberal, and radical activists have resisted him at every turn. Disrupt J20 activists prevented attendees from participating in the inauguration, shutting down checkpoints and training activists. The Women's March brought hundreds of thousands of women and their male allies to D.C., and in cities across the nation and the world, we saw the single largest day of concerted activism in the known history of the world. Environmental rights activists took over a crane in downtown D.C. and displayed a banner with the word resist to highlight the steps they are willing to go to to protect our world. The streets of Philadelphia were clogged with demonstrators when Trump came to town, letting him know that he would get no brotherly love. There have been too many high-profile demonstrations, activist events, and organizing events to list. The mission of the How to Resist podcast is to let you know that you can be a part of the resistance to the Donald Trump administration. We're going to try to demystify activism and let you know how to engage. It isn't just shutting down bridges and risking arrest. It's calling your congressperson, going to city council meetings, volunteering in your community, going to a union meeting, reaching out to your friends and neighbors and letting them know that you are concerned and that you're going to do something about it. Our goal is to let you know that you can be an activist and give you the tools you need to be successful. For our first interview, I'll be speaking with Noor Mir. Noor is a DC-based anti-war organizer. Noor was born and raised in Islamabad, Pakistan, and moved to the U.S. eight years ago to go to college. When she moved to D.C., she joined Code Pink Women for Peace as an anti-drone campaigner. She then worked with the local anti-war organization Washington Peace Center and is now the campaigner for police accountability at human rights organization Amnesty International. On the side, she spends her time as a board member of the Washington Peace Center, as an organizer with the Muslim American Women's Policy Forum, and is on the steering committee of the Movement for Black Lives DC, and engages in skill-building classes for people of color-led organizations and communities. So hi, Nora. Thank you for coming on today. I'm really excited to have you on our first episode. I'm very excited to be here. I think it's very important to be talking to folks and letting them know all the, the ways that they can get involved. How are you resisting? So for me, today has been pretty difficult, uh, you know, knowing about all the families that are 
that are being broken and turned away. So for me, today is a little bit about taking care of myself. But every day since the administration has been full of resistance. Uh, for me, it started with joining the Disrupt J20 uh, counter-inaugural committee, um, really thinking about training folks. So I would say that a lot of where I've seen my skills be put to use is teaching people how to build consensus, how to make quick decisions, how to form affinity groups, uh, trust building and relationship building. Uh, so for me, that's been of most value through Disrupt J20. The second thing would probably be really defensive work around policing. So, you know, knowing that Jeff Sessions um, could be our next attorney general, um, but also knowing that Donald Trump, uh, you know, has committed a lot more resources to law enforcement and protecting law enforcement and what he calls an anti-police atmosphere that he thinks is very dangerous uh, means that a lot could change. Uh, it means that there could be a lot of steps back for the powerful movements that have really changed the climate of this country since and before the death of Michael Brown. So for me, it's been thinking about consent decrees in cities like Baltimore and Chicago, where people have been experiencing police violence for so long. Uh, it's also about federal Blue Lives Matter legislation that was introduced in the House last year, but could probably pass this year. It means there are eight eight anti-policing bills that have been filed uh, around the country, which makes it even harder for folks uh, that are even joining the movement to feel empowered to do so. So that's a little bit on the legislative angle. And then I would say really empowering the Muslim community that I work with, um, specifically Muslim women in D.C. that carry so much of the labor and the burden of educating people uh, about the fact that we are human beings, that we aren't all terrorists, uh, but also being careful not to f fall into the binary of a good Muslim versus a bad Muslim. Uh, so that's where, you know, a lot of the resistance has uh, has been, been focused for me. And I really do want to talk a lot in this interview about the Muslim registries and the things that are impacting Muslim communities and specifically some of the stuff where you know Donald Trump has said people from seven Muslim countries, refugees, cannot come to America anymore. When you think about your activism, how do you define that? Like, how do you define yourself as an activist? For me, I, I believe in leaderful movements, and I know that that's a bit of a cliche word, but I hate being called an activist leader in any way. I find myself doing a lot more work behind the scenes uh, I hate megaphones. I don't really enjoy uh, leading chants or, you know, standing on a soapbox. That's not my style. For me, it's a lot more about those quieter moments. It's a lot more about a Sunday spent in a basement of a community center, making sure that everyone leaves that room empowered to be active the way that, you know, they believe the way that they want to fully exercise their right to do so. So, that's how I define myself. I'm a trainer. Um, I feel as though public education is my strength. I think I think moments where I'm sitting in a circle and I see somebody's eyes light up when I say something about war or imperialism. That's that's how I define myself as an activist. I I don't really like being on the on the front lines or getting too much attention. But you didn't 
jump out of a hat being this amazing trainer who goes around and talks about all these issues. You didn't jump out of out of someplace knowing all of these issues. How did you first get involved in being an activist? So I was not active growing up. I you know, was born and raised in Islamabad, Pakistan. I lived there until 2008. And when I was there, I would say that people's movements have always been strong. So for me, you know, my my life was was sort of marked. A, I live lived a, a life and continue to live a life blessed with a lot of privilege, a lot of class privilege specifically. And I was very aware of that growing up. But I saw what was happening around me. There were lawyers' movements, poor people's movements to overthrow dictatorships. Uh, the first protest I went to uh, was was against uh, you know General Musharraf. Um, but I didn't really know what I was doing there. When I when I went to college, I remember I was in a uh, constitutional law class, and that's where I I learned about. Um, affirmative action and the word intersectionality and and it was in a very academic way um, but when I went home I think it was around 2009 I picked up a newspaper an Urdu newspaper and it had a description of a drone strike um, in the tribal areas of Pakistan and I had no idea why this wasn't more of a problem I didn't even know what a drone was I remember you know logging into our uh, online library at Vassar which is where I went to college and couldn't find anything on drones at all uh, or unmanned aerial vehicles you know they were used decades before it was actually first used um, by Israel um, in the early 90s but that was it and when I came back to the U.S. after being in Pakistan, I realized that that's what I wanted to investigate, that I wanted to do everything that I could and to use the privilege that I have to be able to travel, you know, back home and get my dad to help set up appointments and, and travel to the tribal areas and interview people that had seen drone strikes um, you know, with their own eyes to to make sure that people knew that this was real, that this is something that had to be talked about. So for me, that was really the beginning of a grand awakening for me. Um, and I, I moved to D.C. with the intention of working at a civil rights litigation firm. Um, and I was really miserable. And I saw that a group of women from D.C. had actually traveled home to Islamabad, Pakistan, um, and held rallies and protests around drone strikes. So I found out who they were. I applied for a job. They did not want to give it to me. They said they really wanted somebody who had lobbying experience that was already an activist. And I said, no way. You are not going to hire someone that is not Pakistani to run this campaign. It's going to be me. And they let me in, and that that was the beginning. That's really, really powerful. Um one of the words that you said in there was intersectionality, and I don't want to get off the topic, but could you tell me what you mean when you say intersectionality? Absolutely. So interestingly enough, one of my internships when I was in college was with the woman who coined the word intersectionality. So Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and I spent a summer with her at the African American Policy Forum in Columbia Law School. And I remember that we came up with a board game where you could get a token and you could be any identity you could be japanese american korean white black and 
uh, you would draw cards that would be different pieces of legislation or something that would happen in your life. Um, and you would play this board game and it would just show you how different identities are so policed and criminalized and, and, and uh, you know, justified by really dangerous legislation uh, throughout the history and conception of the United States. So for me, that was the first time I, I understood where I was, um, you know, thinking about my class privilege, but also thinking about where I would be on that spectrum as a South Asian woman and as a recent immigrant to this country. So for me, that was, you know, my very baseline understanding of intersectionality. But now it really has evolved. And now it's evolved to me thinking about intersectionality in terms of movements. So as someone who, you know, is very dedicated to the anti-war movement and what happens outside, you know, U.S. borders, I see all of that come home and manifest in my day job, which is around policing. And when I see a tear gas canister you know, made by Safari Land uh, in New Jersey, used and on the streets uh, in Baltimore, you know, I think about how that same tear gas canister is probably used by the Pakistani military or is found, uh, you know, emptied um, after a protest in Gaza. Uh, so for me, those are the movements that connect and need to be uplifted. And for me, that's what intersectionality has become. Yeah, I always think it's so interesting that we talk a lot about intersectionality in our movement building, but Kimberly Crenshaw is an act is an active writer. She's still out there putting out new ideas, and it's only recently that we've had a big conversation about what intersectionality even is, uh, let alone how it impacts the work that we as activists are trying to do. I think that you have a really good understanding of how change is made. Could you tell me a little bit about that, keeping in mind sort of the work that you're doing with J20, but also your day job, but also um, the work that you're doing with in the Muslim community. Absolutely. I think that there, I, I know people say this a lot, but I think that there is a beautiful diversity of tactics. And I hope that every activist knows that they should be fully empowered and supported in choosing the route that, that they do. You know, for for me in my day job, uh, it's a lot about drafting legislation. It's a lot about finding activists in key states like Washington State and training them to deliver testimony on the use of police force. For me, that's, you know, not necessarily a flashy way to be active, but it is a way to support real work that's happening. For me, it's also about empowerment and education. So I would say with the Muslim community specifically uh, and around NCRs, which was the earlier iteration of the Muslim registry, you know, we're learning about how there weren't even interpretation services, how uh, a Muslim grandmother could, uh, you know, well, now it might be a grandmother back then. It was it was all men. Let's say that somebody for whom English is not a native language is taken to a office on the 60th floor of a skyscraper in Manhattan and forced to prove that they are good people. So for me, that's public education is making sure that we're connecting with mosques and community centers uh, where, you know, there, there are a lot of folks who for whom English might be a second language and making sure that they know their rights and making sure that they have someone who you know, speaks their dialect or their language that they can communicate with and get skilled up and ready. So, you know, that's another way to be active. I also think it's it can be really focused on a local level. So, you know, just last year, we had an incident in the Shaw Library of a law enforcement officer 
who asked a woman in a hijab to take it off or risk arrest. And that's right down the street in D.C. Right down the street in D.C. And that, to me, really highlights all the different ways that a person can mobilize. We had um, Jessica Raven, who works on anti-street harassment. Um, really, she, she was actually there and witnessed what was going on. She then called Muslim leaders um, and women such as myself and, and Darakshan Raja and said, you know, something horrible just happened. I don't think any of us know how to talk about harassment in an, in an Islamophobic context and in the context of policing. So now we have the library actually commit to public education. We work with city council to pass a resolution um, which uh, uh, just, you know, unequivocally stating their support for Muslims and immigrants and refugees in these times. Um, and, and just next week, we actually have our first seminar series and a panel on Islamophobia that's happening across uh, D.C. public libraries. So for me, you know, it started with that eyewitness moment. It started with alerting networks around D.C., We had a rally where folks came with headgear, with hats, with hoodies, with hijabs um, to talk about how it's it's not okay to be criminalized just because you're trying to read a book. Um, but for me, that's, that's the diversity of tactics. That's the beauty of tactics. It's making that phone call to your city council member. It's showing up in force. It's knowing who to call and when, when to make it happen. And it's just being as risky as possible, but also seeing things to the end. You can't just react and be upset. Um, you know, if you're committed, there are ways to have a timeline and have a real strategy about what you want to see change. Yeah, I really like how you're talking about how you don't necessarily have to do the hard activism mm-hmm. things. It's a lot. A lot of it has to do with organizing. A lot of it has to do with building community. And I and I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about what an activist is. Mm-hmm. And the goal of this podcast is to take people who don't necessarily know what an activist is, how they can be an activist, uh, and make it something that's maybe more accessible. What are some of the misconceptions that people have about activists and how would you dispel those misconceptions? Something that destroys my soul a little bit is when you get comments like just get a job or, you know, go do something that's worthy with your life. And, you know, there are folks that are unemployed that are also activists. And I think that it's, it's okay to, to own up to the fact that it's not glamorous and it's not flashy. It's not about a one-hour blockade on a bridge, which I've done multiple times. As have I. It's, right? It's not about just that moment. It's about the days and weeks leading up to when you decided why doing that bridge was going to you know, be a strategic idea. How are you going to get press there? What's the follow-up plan? Are you going to have a press conference? How are you going to have jail support? So for me, the biggest misconception is that it's fun. It's not fun. It is taxing. It is um, the small details that take up a lot of time. It's knowing that, you know, a rally is just a tactic. It's not a strategy. It's something you do, you know, when you decide that it's a good time to escalate. But Mm -hmm. unless you're thinking about it in the bigger picture, and the bigger picture is what takes the most energy and labor, you know, that's that's from for me activism is just a, a point on a timeline of strategic change 
You said that activism isn't necessarily fun, but I know that I personally have gotten a lot out of my activism, um, apart from the policy goals, apart from achieving victories. Um, what are some of the things that maybe have been fun, maybe have been personally rewarding to you? I think it's meeting people. When I moved to D.C., I didn't ever think that I would have a community the way that I do right now. And it's people from all over the world. It's people, you know, that have expressed themselves and been a part of so many movements. And for me, that is the most beautiful and rewarding part of activism. It's it's not, and, and, and it can be fun sometimes. I think that once you have a victory and you you know, are surrounded by and shaking hands with and hugging and crying people that have been with you the entire way, that is beautiful and fun and rewarding. And it's okay to lose yourself in that moment and be really happy, uh, you know, even if it's something tiny. Um, I think that sometimes we do get too bogged down with uh, what's going on and we forget to pat ourselves on the back. It's almost a little sadistic, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we say, well, we don't deserve this. Um, you know, you're, you're very self-critical as an activist. You constantly think like you're not doing enough and it's okay to be happy when you win something that seems tiny, um, in retrospect. And I think that one of the important things is to take care of ourselves. Absolutely. One of the, uh, events that I recently went to, they passed around a sign-up sheet and they asked, can you do these dozen things? And... Sometimes you can only do one or two of them. Sometimes you're just there to learn a little bit. Sometimes you're just there because you want to be supportive of the people in your community. Um, But how do you take care of yourself? How do you do self-care? And how do you prevent yourself from getting burned out? Because that's a uh, every day this past few weeks, there has been some sort of demonstration, some sort of action that people can take. And it can be overwhelming. How do you prevent burnout and how do you do self-care? I I think it's perfectly okay to say no. I I believe that there is a culture around activism that constantly expects you to be doing the most at all times. And it's okay to say no. It's okay to say, you know what, I really need to read up on this issue and go to the rally day after tomorrow instead of today. It's okay to do that. It's it's fine to really think about where your skills would be of most use and try not to do everything at once. So for me, you know, if there is a press conference and somebody wants me to talk, I, I think, you know, I actually think I would be best suited to help you in writing a press release or handling social media. Um, you know, I, I don't think I can fully commit to that at that time. I think it's okay to say no. So that's something that I've been practicing more and more is saying no. Something else would be it's okay to not read the news for a day. I know it's really difficult. It's almost healthy to unplug. And that's something that I've been trying to practice more is turning my phone off, turning my Wi-Fi off if it gets to that level. And, you know, sometimes I give my phone to my partner and just tell him to hide it for a few hours and I don't know where it is. Um, so you should have a buddy or somebody who can look out for you and do that for you. I think I think that taking care of yourself is really, really important. Um, in terms of the administration, the Trump administration, what are some of your biggest concerns? My biggest concern from a very personal level is that I won't be able to see my dad in the United States. He's 
Pakistan's not one of the seven countries on the list, but we're already hearing today that people that are green card holders or have visas from any Muslim-majority country that has ever been on any sort of list are still being turned away or are being told to go back. So for me, that's the biggest thing, is am I going to have my dad here if I get married? You know, if I go home to Pakistan, I'm I'm a dual citizen. If I go home to Pakistan, is Trump going to do something uh, to end the dual citizenship? And is that going to put my plans to come back home in jeopardy? So that's for me on a very personal level is terrifying. I think the second thing that is really scary is the day-to-day life of visibly Muslim people in this country. And I don't feel as though we are prepared to deal with what's going to come. I think that, you know, in the past year, we've seen a huge spike in in hate crimes perpetuated by xenophobia. Um, I know that the recent numbers were almost 64% increase um, in 2016. In, in hate crimes perpetuated by Islamophobia. And, and that's higher than it was right after 9-11. Exactly. It's higher. But for some reason, it doesn't have that same friend. It did, or, or at least last year, it didn't seem to have the same frenzy or the same kind of paranoia and, and kind of a national outrage about it. But I think that people are waking up. I just don't know if... I don't know if we're ready to battle it out. So that's my biggest my biggest fear is... You know, just yesterday, um, after he signed the executive order on Muslims, um, a mosque in Texas that's already been subjected to hate crimes in the, in the past um, was burned down. So that's what's really scary for me, is that for, for people that are already part of vulnerable populations for whom mosques and community centers are home, it's for immigrants, those are the spaces where you have family especially if, if you you aren't able to be with your entire family. You know, you as like a single parent or someone who who has family across the ocean, a mosque is is home. And the fact that people's homes are going to be lost or they're too scared to walk down the street, that's what's really heartbreaking for me. How can someone who wants to battle Islamophobia plug into the work that you're doing? So if you live in D.C., um, we're part of the D.C. Justice for Muslims Coalition, which uh, is not only the Muslim American Women's Policy Forum, which is a local Muslim women-led grassroots anti-war org, but we also have the Washington Peace Center. That's part of that coalition. We also have the National Coalition to Protect Civil Freedoms, which has really been around uh, since since nine eleven and focuses on Muslim political prisoners um, that are wrongly detained in this in this country. Um, it also has a collective action for safe spaces, which focuses on street harassment. Um, and it's really incredible to kind of see these movements. When you know when I talk about intersectionality, it's it's moments like these. And and the best part, really, for the coalition for me, not hating on the other orgs, is many languages, one voice, which you know, is a local immigrant-led org that focuses on language access for people. So the fact that we're all in this together, um, the DC Justice for Muslims Coalition, I think really speaks to how we envision fighting for, for what's in the future. So you can actually check us out. We have a Facebook Facebook page, uh, DC Justice for Muslims Coalition, um, and I'll share the email address as well, which is... Uh, and, and that'll be in the notes. Oh, it will be. Okay, so Islamophobia Coalition at gmail.com. 
Um, and you know, we're, we're working to set up some kind of communication structure, uh, and, and I'm really excited to, to see what happens with that. I would also say, you know, if you're not in DC, there are just so many ways that, that you can prepare yourself. Yeah. What what about someone in Texas? What about someone in Nebraska or California? I would say that find out what Muslim orgs are in, in, in your, in your state. There is usually a care chapter, the council for American Islamic relations. And I know that in some states they're incredibly tiny and not well-funded. So reach out to them and see, you know, what they would need in this moment. I think the second thing um, would really be just keeping an eye out on Muslim community centers and mosques uh, in your neighborhood. You know, I know that sometimes people frown upon small things like sending food or notes or letters, but sometimes when somebody just sends me a note being like, hey, how are you doing? That's like the kindest thing that someone could be doing for me. And I think it's okay to not... I, I, I just... I see a lot of people saying that's not enough and people scoff at that. But I think for somebody that's new to activism, we should uplift those kinds of moments of kindness. And I think that sending a letter um, saying, you know what, I live down the street from you in the small town in Nebraska. Um, I know that Muslims are scared right now. I wanted to let you know that I support this mosque. And if you ever need volunteers to help with anything over the weekend or help with anything in particular, I'm here. And I think it's okay to uplift those moments and and validate them. I think absolutely that's right. And I think that that is a gateway to activism for a lot of people. And it's those small acts of kindness, those small acts that say, we are a country that loves the people that want to come here, that accepts people of all races, that values um, religious freedom. I think that those small things really do need to be lifted up. And I think that they're a really great gateway into activism and into making change in the world around us. I had something else to add as well that I've seen a lot of activists, especially high school students, be doing in on their campuses, which is having even a classroom or some kind of space uh, whether that's in your school library or a gym, that's a hate-free zone. And, it's and you know, it seems kind of wild to even suggest that that needs to happen. But I can imagine that that would be something that instills a lot of hope and safety, especially for young immigrants and students that are really scared right now. So I would say that if you attend school or don't see those kinds of efforts around you, Think about what educators and what what kind of teachers you have. Is there somebody who would host host uh, you know like an after school program um, or a buddy system or other kinds of support networks in some of these spaces that activists don't necessarily think about all too much? And you're sort of talking about safe spaces. Mm-hmm. And um, can we talk a little bit more about that? Just because there's a lot of hate of the idea of safe spaces, but. Safe spaces aren't a new idea. Alcoholics Anonymous is a safe space for people to talk about their alcoholism. Uh, Weight Watchers is a safe space for people to talk about their struggles with weight. Um, There are all types of safe spaces, uh, spaces for victims of rape. Uh, But a lot of people sort of hate on the idea of a safe space. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you mean when you talk about that? When I talk about a safe space, it's an honest affirmative space it it's physical it's a place where you have some semblance of trust and agreements with everyone around you 
It is a practice in consensus building and responsibility and accountability. And more than ever now, we should not be frowning on safe spaces. I know that, you know, people pontificate and intellectualize about what safe spaces are. You know, whether you have something, a safe space has to be built. It isn't something that you can just say, oh, well, you know, this is a safe space, so please leave or don't say that. It's something that takes labor and practice and actually, you know, challenging people that violate those agreements. So for me, a safe space would be where an example would be when we have a safe space for Muslim women. We accept them no matter how they are, whether you're in a hijab or a burqa or you're a Muslim woman who doesn't cover her head, um, which is also a whole thing, because if you're Muslim and you don't cover your head, sometimes um, mainstream Muslim orgs um, and people that you know have a holier-than-thou attitude um, also shun you away. So for me, a safe space is that beautiful, creative space where we welcome all Muslim women and uphold each other's values and are kind to each other and laugh and... We need those spaces. I I need to be in a space with someone who is as scared as I am or someone who isn't going to tell me, well, you know, it's going to be okay. Stay strong. We're going to be fine. I don't need to hear that in in that space. It's okay for me to cry and break down and, and, and know that everyone around me isn't going to judge me for that. It's really powerful. And I think that we absolutely need those spaces. All right, it's time for the how to resist quick question round. Just a really quick answer. First thing that comes to your head. Is it okay to punch a Nazi in the face? Yes. All right, what's the dumbest thing you've ever heard a counter-protester yell at you? All lives matter. Um, Who's your favorite member of Congress? None. Uh, What was the last book that you read? The Mahabharata. Uh, What are three quick tips to someone who wants to resist the Trump administration? Get a fat Sharpie. Learn some self-defense and get some comfortable shoes. Worst thing that Trump has done yet? Ban Muslims. All right. What question would you want to hear asked on this podcast? What is the best sign that you've seen at recent protests? All right. Who's your least favorite member of Congress? Fuck. Um... I actually don't really like Gillibrand. Fair. What's your favorite chant? Chant? Yeah. Uh, we want to live... Oh, this is one that we just came up with. Um, we want to live safe. We want to live free. No Muslim registry. What song gets you pumped up for activism? One Dance by Drake. Uh, who's the worst cabinet member or appointee or nom- nominee? Jeff Sessions. Um, what podcasts do you listen to? None. None? Never. All right, that's about all the time that we have for our quick question round. Thank you very much, Noor. What would you tell someone who wants to be involved? Maybe someone who came to the Women's March, maybe has been to one rally, one march, isn't sure what to do. Um, What would you tell them to do to get involved in resisting the Trump administration? I would say find two friends that have did not go to the Women's March, that have never been to a rally before and take them to one more. The most beautiful thing that I've seen is new faces in the crowd. And I'm seeing all of these spontaneous affinity groups form. I'm seeing people that told me that what I was doing was a waste of time. And what do you mean by an affinity group? So an affinity group is really your crew. So let's say that you have, you're two really angry people, you don't have any activists around you, and you 
go out for lunch and you say, you know what? There's this one person that I work with that I think I could crack. What about you? Yeah, there's one person that, you know, I go running with that I think would come with me. Boom, you have two more people. You've already doubled your numbers. So those are the folks that, you know, when you see a rally happening at an airport like there are today for people to, you know, to say that the ban on refugees is not okay. Those are the people that you're going to get on the subway with or find a ride with, make some signs with and just go. And I think that that is the magic of organizing and activism if you're new, is finding those people and and taking risks and asking folks that you didn't think would be interested. Thank you so much for coming and uh, being here with me today. And I really appreciate you being on our first episode. Uh, Very, really excited. Is there anything that you would like to tell our listeners? I would like to tell you that you're not alone. I know that this is a scary time. I think that everyone in this country is affected by this and you should never feel like you, you're you the only one. And just know that there are people that are terrified but there are also people that are spending you know, nights and days trying to figure out what we're going to do and we're, we're going to get through this. It's going to be difficult but you're a part of this now. If you're listening to this, you're already a part of a movement and you are probably going to inspire people around you and you know don't be scared to have those conversations thank you so much this has been the how to resist podcast you can find us online at howtoresistpodcast.com on twitter at htr podcast and on the itunes store and the stitcher radio network please subscribe and leave a review I would like to thank Sariel Layani for our logo design, Beth Soderberg for website assistance, and Carolyn Hanrahan for production assistance. Thank you to Noor Mir for being on the show. You can find out more about fighting Islamophobia by getting in touch with the DC Justice for Muslims Coalition through Facebook or dcjusticeformuslims at gmail.com or the Council on American Islamic Relations at cair.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Will O'Neill. Thank you for resisting.